0: to turn your Bibles to Genesis 8, Genesis 8 as we continue our series Origins, which is coming from the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we've probably got about three or four messages left, and then we will finish this very foundational section of scripture, I've certainly enjoyed it, hope you have as well, and so we will meet together this morning in Genesis chapter number 8. My wife and I, this uh, yesterday, we experienced a Southwest Kansas first. We went to, in Scott City, Wimmy Diddle. How many of you all know about Wimmy Diddle? Raise your hand. All right, that means I don't feel as bad because there's some of you who haven't raised your hand. You don't know about Wimmy Diddle. Well, don't discount it because of the very strange name. It is a... I don't know, an artisan festival of sorts in Scott City, uh, baked goods, uh, artisan crafts, things like that for sale. It was a, a pretty big thing. I mean, there's not a lot of big stuff probably going on in Scott City every weekend, but on this particular weekend, people were flocking to Scott City from Garden City, I know someone who had family from Johnson heading down to Scott City. I mean, it is a big deal. A lot of people there. I mean, I saw 10 people I knew from Garden City just in the two hours we were there. And they managed to yank out some money out of my pocket while we were there, too. Got some great cinnamon rolls and things like that. We went around, watched all the the booths if you've been there. there's. I mean, we got homemade jam homemade cinnamon rolls by some Mennonite folk. You just know it's going to be good stuff when when they're making it. And uh, we ended the day, like a good parent, we bribed our children not to complain all day, you know. And so I told my kids, one of the first booths we passed was a cotton candy booth. And, you know, what is one thing that every parent hates but every kid simultaneously loves? It's cotton, stinking candy. And so I told them, if you... Don't complain a single time during our time here. You can have some cotton candy when we get done. So what do we do? We walk through the booths and we're holding this bribe above their head the whole time so they don't annoy the fire out of us. And we say, we'll get you some cotton candy. We get to the cotton candy booth. And what happens? Pardon your pastor. But it bothers the life out of me when people cut in line. Somebody give a witness to that this morning. And it's not just anybody who cuts in line. It was like a large family who wanted like five cotton candies that cut me in line. Your pastor had to exercise something I'm not very good at, patience. I had to wait in that line. I was ready. If you've been to Wimmy Diddle, especially if you brought kids to Wimmy Diddle, I was ready to get out of there and I had to wait. I hate waiting. Who else hates waiting in this Room. My wife knows I hate waiting. I'm terrible at waiting. I did some research this week, and it's a little bit depressing how much we spend our lives waiting. This will depress you a little bit, but I promise there's hope at the end of the tunnel. On average, Americans wait 32 minutes when they visit a doctor. On average, we wait 28 minutes in security lines when we travel. Sorry, Guille, you're flying to Mexico here in a couple of weeks. You're going to wait in line a little bit. On average, we wait 21 minutes for a spouse to be ready to go. Don't say amen or you might get a smack. Each year, I think I'm ahead of the curve on this, we wait 13 hours on hold for customer service. This is why I live in Guard City, because those who live in big cities wait in traffic more than 50 hours a year. Somebody give praise that we don't live in one of them big cities. You add it up, human beings spend six months of their lives waiting in line. Three days a year waiting for something to queue up on the internet. And the average person spends 43 days of their life in total on hold waiting for customer service. I think someone would get voted in as president if they could abolish Waiting for customer service. And I look at statistics like that, don't you, and get a little bit depressed because I think I'm going to waste 43 days of my life, a month and a half, waiting for customer service who probably, let's be real, won't help me at the end of the day. I hate waiting. Waiting stinks. It stinks when you're waiting for customer service to fix your technical issue. The reality is is that waiting stinks when we wait longer than 30 minutes for things that are a lot more important. For some of us, for some of you, you wait for years for a child to turn back to Jesus. We wait for months to get out of a difficulty that stresses us out every day. We wait for years for God to bless the work we are putting in right now. We wait for years to climb out of a financial situation and get to a place of financial comfort. Chances are, if you're in this room, you are waiting on God for something. Are we in agreement on that? Waiting for God to heal? And sometimes, doesn't it, it feels like people are cutting in line. They don't have to wait as long as you. Someone give me a witness to that. They get what you're waiting for before you do. Waiting is excruciating. It's not just you that has to wait in this life. Noah had to wait too. The last couple of weeks we've seen how Noah entered the ark when God promised judgment on the world for its sins. And for all intents and purposes, we know that Noah was saved from the storm the moment that he entered that ark. Because he was safely shut in by the hand of the Lord. But as you read Genesis 6, 7, and 8, the record shows us that Noah may have been saved the day he entered that boat. But he was on that boat for an entire year of his life. Even when God began to pull back the floodwaters of judgment, as we see in Genesis chapter 8, it doesn't actually mean that Noah received what God had promised him yet. I think our passage this morning, if you're waiting on God, has at least two really important lessons to teach us. If you're in a season of waiting... Listen this morning to two reminders God wants to give you while you wait for God to come through. We see in chapter 8, verse number 1, that Noah's story pivots on this phrase. I encourage you to follow along and your Bible or digital Bible as we look through the passage this morning. But in chapter 8, verse number 1, we talked about this a little bit last week, that the whole story of the flood hinges on this sentence, and God remembered Noah. Noah wasn't saved by what he did. Noah wasn't saved by his genius engineering of this boat. Noah wasn't saved because he was a good guy. Noah was saved because God had a relationship With Noah, And it's the same that's true for us. Unless we are in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, nothing will change. Our ultimate salvation from sin and death itself will never happen apart from the work of Jesus Christ as God enters into relationship with us. And so as God remembers his relationship with Noah, not as though God had forgot about it, but as God is acting in response to what he already knew... Verse number 1 through 4 details out how God begins to pull back the floodwaters of judgment. Listen to all of these things that God did in verse number 1. It says, God remembered no one, every living thing, and all the cattle that was within the ark. And notice how God is the initiator. God made a wind to pass over the earth. And you can read the subsequent phrases in verses 1 through 4. And really insert that idea of God made this happen. So verse number one, God made a wind pass over the earth. Verse number one, God made the waters assuaged. Verse number two, God made the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven stop. Verse number 2, God made and restrained the rain from heaven. Verse number 3, the waters returned from off the earth continually because God made them do it. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated because God made them do that. Well, we have to recognize this morning, this isn't the main point I'm getting at, but that our salvation has nothing to do with what you and I bring to the table. It has everything to do with God's mighty power on our behalf. Friend, nobody is saved from the judgment of sin and an eternity in hell unless they come to a recognition that our good works, our deeds, our morals, our church attendance bring nothing to the table. Our baptism brings nothing to the table. That God initiated our salvation on his own end. God made it happen. God sent his son Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died on a cross and suffered for sins. And Jesus rose from the dead to give you and I that hope. It's all by God's power. And it's Jesus who takes us out of danger and judgment and places us in safety, which is what verse number 4 records. It says in verse number 4 that the ark rested in the seventh month. Literally, God removes the ark from the tumultuous storms and is placing it in a place of safety. Though the waters were not abated at that time, God put Noah in a place of safety on the mountains of Ararat. Now what on earth is Moses' point in verses 1-4? through Why is Moses making this point for our waiting seasons? Here's what God wants to tell us this morning. If you're in a waiting season... I want to remind you, I want to encourage you to believe that God's mighty power is working. Believe God's mighty power is working. Let me ask you a question. Of all the things described in verses 1-4, through how much do you think Noah saw with his two eyes? Do you think Noah could see from that boat that only had a window at the very tippy top? that the fountains of the deep are closed up? Do you think Noah could perceive the mighty wind that was driving back this worldwide flood? Do you think Noah could tell all that God was doing underneath the surface of the waters? Then, friend, what makes us think that we can always perfectly detect what God is doing in our lives? The truth of the matter is, is that God tends to work beneath the surface. God tends to work behind the scenes. In fact, Noah would have only known what was happening in verses 1-4 through when he saw God's work completed. He didn't see what God was up to until he saw when it was done. And I think it's true this morning that you and I rarely believe God is working until we can look back later and see how God was at work. Time and time again, we find ourselves in waiting seasons. And in our waiting seasons, we doubt that God is working in those seasons. But every time what happens? When we come out of a waiting season, we look back and we see the hand of God working all along the way. And can I remind you this morning that when God is working, sometimes he's working in different ways than you'd expect. One of the most famous verses in the Bible talks about God's work, doesn't it? That God works all things together for what? For good. But friend, sometimes we quote that verse and we stop at that sentence. God doesn't work all things together for good for everybody. He works them together for good for those who are his children, those who are called according to his purpose. But then the next verse defines for us what that good is. Sometimes the way God's power is working is not in the way you want his power to work. Sometimes the way God's power is working is for your ultimate spiritual good, not for bringing about the results of the circumstances you would hope he would bring about. Because what God says is his good is the predestining of conforming us to his image. That when Paul says in Romans 8 that God is working together things for good, it doesn't mean he's bringing about the results you always wanted, That he's going to bring that spouse along or he's going to bring the healing you want in this life or he's going to resolve your family issues in the time that you want him. But what God is always up to every single time underneath the surface is this. God is working everything for your spiritual growth. God is working. But let's be honest this morning. We don't believe that. Oh, come on now. Am I the only one? We don't believe God's working. We struggle in our waiting seasons. Because we don't see it. I want to help you this morning. That if your Christian life, your trust that God is working is dependent on the fact that you in your brain and your mind can logically piece together what God is up to at every moment of your life. Your walk with Jesus will be a miserable experience. Because the reality is, is that God doesn't tell us what he's up to. The reality is, if you read the book of Habakkuk, I love what God says to Habakkuk when Habakkuk is saying, God, tell me what you're up to. Don't you wish you could ask God this morning? God, would you just tell me what you're up to? You know what God says to Habakkuk? If I, he says, behold, I will work a work in your days, which even if I would tell you, you would not believe it. You know, the truth of the matter is, if God told you what he was up to, it still wouldn't be good enough. This morning, I think for some of you, as you're in a waiting season and you're wondering how God is working, what you need to do this morning is you need to surrender the why and the how. God, why are you doing this? And how are you going to work through this? Because the truth of the matter is, Christians... That if we believe that God is up to things that we can't explain and we believe that God doesn't tell us for a reason, there needs to come a time in your life and in my life where we stop thinking we need to get to the bottom of why and we surrender the why to God. That we just say and we decide in our mind that God, because of what you've done in the past, I will trust your working in the present. I may not be able to piece it all together. It may not make sense if I would have written out how my life should go. But God, I'm just going to sit here today and I'm going to believe that your mighty power is working. I'm not asking you to believe that on a, on a whim or a fantasy. I'm asking you to believe that God is working because God has proven to you in the past that he can work by his mighty power. This story of the waters being pulled up from the sea by an east wind is not the first time this happens. Where else do we see in the Bible God bringing a mighty east wind, pulling back waters, saving his people, and then, spoiler alert, entering into a waiting period of 40? We see that in the story of the exodus from Egypt. And God would save his people by his mighty power through pulling back the Red Sea and parting the Red Sea. And his people who were in a relationship with him, whom God remembered in Exodus chapter number 2, it would be those people that would be saved. And I want you to notice what God says at the end of that story. In Exodus 14, I think it's verse 31. He says this, And Israel saw the great work which the Lord did, past tense, upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant, Moses. For in how do you believe God is working? You trust God is working now based on how God has worked in the past. You reflect on how God has come through before and you trust that God will come through again. You might say, well, I wish I had something to reflect on in the past. I wish I had some miracles that I could look back on and see how God's power was working even in the waiting. If you're a Christian this morning, your faith is staked on the fact that God was working even when it seemed like nothing was happening. Because after Jesus died on that cross and was laid in that tomb, it seemed like nothing was going on. For three days. For three days it seemed like God had failed his people. For three days it seemed like God hadn't come through. For three days it seemed like the disciples had wasted three years of their life following Jesus. But what happened on the third day? Well, Jesus rose from the dead and he proved once and for all that when we are waiting, God is working. And friend, I don't know what your past says. I don't know what miracles of God you've seen in the past. But here's what I can assure you. You can have nothing in your bank of experience to trust God. But if you believe that the resurrection is real, you can trust that God's mighty power is working even in the presence. God is working. Now I've got a warning for you. God works really slowly. Like, sometimes it feels really, really slowly. That's the story of Noah, actually. Because in verses 6-12, through 12, I, I don't understand it, to be honest. If I was writing the story of Noah, here's what I would do. Verse number 1, God made a wind to pass over the earth... And then 204 days later, Noah walked out of the ark and he celebrated. That's how I would write the story. But listen, let's believe this for a minute, Christians, that every word of God is there for a reason. That all scripture is given by inspiration of God and all scripture is profitable. It's for our benefit. So there's six verses here that are there literally giving us a chronology of Noah's waiting. They're showing us how much time Listen to this. How much time passed between God working and Noah seeing God's work? And, and we see this chronology in several different verses. That, bef- that though God's power had brought the east wind, Noah didn't step out on dry ground until this different, uh, these different seasons happened. Verse number 3, it shows us how Noah waits for 150 days. Verse number 6, it shows us how Noah waits for 40 days. And then he sends out a raven and a dove. But the dove couldn't land on anything, apparently because the waters were still really, really high on the earth. So the dove comes back to Noah. And in verse number 10, Noah waits another seven days. And then Noah sends out that dove again, and we'll get to the dove here in a minute, who brings him an olive leaf. Look at verse number 10. And he stayed yet other seven days. He waited. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And you know what Noah does after that? He waits. Look at verse twelve. And he stayed, or it could be translated, waited. He waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. Two hundred and four days of waiting. Now listen. I don't think Noah, or sorry, Moses is like I was in college trying to add as many sentences to my essays that meant nothing so I could reach a word count. Anyone guilty of that? I had a 500-word essay, or I thought, yeah, Adam, Adam's like, yep, that's me. Right? I mean, that was me. You know, add as much fluff where you're saying something, but you're not really saying anything so that you can get the two-page paper your teacher told you to turn in. That's not what Moses is doing. What is Moses showing us in in this book? Oh, man, you've got to embrace this. Noah, he's showing us by the example of Noah. God's people are awaiting people. God's people are awaiting people. Some of you only write down stuff that's on the screen, but you might want to write that down. God's people are awaiting people. I told you that there's similarities in the story between this and the Red Sea deliverance in the Exodus, right? That it was after God pulled back the waters that God's people once again waited for a period of 40, not days, 40 years. In fact, what we know is that this book of Genesis was not It was written and delivered to the people of Israel during their time of waiting in the wilderness. These five books of the Torah were given to Israel in really one big installment, almost like God just comes out with a series of books and publishes them all at the same time to his people who are in the waiting. They are in that ark for 40 days, so to speak. They are waiting on God to come through, and they're sending out a dove and a raven, they're sending out spies, and nothing's happening. No, they, they aren't moving in the promised land. They're still stuck in the ark. But you know what's interesting to me? You, you, you Bible nerds in the pews. Israel had to wait 40 years because of what? Their sin. But Noah waited his own period of 40... Not because he did anything wrong. Just because. And I think sometimes as Christians and as people of God, we think waiting is a punishment. We think that the only people who wait are those who've gotten it wrong. But chapter 6 says that Noah was a righteous man. That he was perfect in God's sight. That he was upright in his generations. And yet it was that same upright righteous man that is waiting on God and waiting and waiting. Don't you think God had the power to roll back the seas in one day? Hey, friend, that's what he did on the second day of creation. What does it say in Genesis 1? It says he parted the waters from the waters in one instant when he spoke. And yet now God is taking 204 days to make it happen. God could have done it as quickly as he did in Genesis 1, but yet he chose, for reasons we don't understand, to make Noah wait. God's people are awaiting people, Christians are waiting people. Our faith is forged on the gap between the crucifixion and three days later in the resurrection. And then, friend, we all recognize this, that God saves us when we trust in Christ's perfect work and we repent. But we also understand that our salvation is not affected fully until later. Because though we are saved by the grace of God here and now when we repent and trust in Christ, sin still remains, the earth is still imperfect, we still suffer disease, and we still suffer pain, and we believe that later, after waiting, God will come back and he will fix it all. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, I think is a beautiful verse. You might meditate on this this week. Paul summarizes the Thessalonians in their waiting experience. To wait from his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Wait a second. Did Jesus deliver us? Or are we waiting on him to deliver us? Both. God's people are waiting people. And if that's true for our salvation, if our salvation is quite literally defined by an intermediate waiting period, why should we be surprised when the smaller acts of God's work and power are filled by waiting time? When we wait for God to heal hoping that maybe it happens in this life, but if we believe in a resurrected Christ, we are assured that it happens in the next life. We are waiting for God to work when it seems like he isn't working. We are waiting for God to fix sin and confront people who've wandered from him. We are waiting for God to draw a lost one to salvation. Do you know what Noah's story is trying to tell us this morning as awaiting people? To submit to God's timing. When you are waiting, submit to God's timing. Sometimes his timing in Genesis 1 is one day. He could do it in one day. Sometimes his timing is 204 days. In the book of Numbers, his timing is 40 years. But here's what we all have to do. We have to remember and we have to recognize that we don't just need to surrender the why and the how. We need to surrender the when. We need to submit to God's timing. And we need to stop putting timelines on God as if he's our employee. Because God gets to choose the timing and we don't because God is sovereign and God is king and we are not. But here's the question that I think all of you are asking. You're like, yeah, that would be great, Pastor Mike. Sounds really good for the guy in the pulpit. How on earth do I do that? Because waiting on God is far worse than waiting in a cotton candy line when that family cut me yesterday. That hurt. hurt. I mean, I was standing right there. They should have looked behind and said, hey, this, this fellow standing right here. He's still in line. And we're still, oh, maybe we should get behind. Him. But, man, it's so much harder, isn't it, to wait on God and see that person see God come through and see that person have what they've been praying for and see that thing answered and that miraculous thing happen and you're just standing in the back of the line still waiting. What do you think sustained Noah. In his waiting time. I know we we cover this in several weeks, but if you would have read if you would read Genesis six through eight in one sitting, you would recognize that in Noah's story, God speaks directly to Noah a lot. But from the day Noah entered the ark, God stopped speaking. Now, why on earth could Noah sit there for a year? God didn't tell him, by the way, how long it'd be. How could Noah sit there when God hadn't been speaking? And this might teach us something about our own waiting time and how we submit to God's timing. Because if we are in the waiting, and we are waiting for God to come through for us, Here's how we do it. Sustain yourself in waiting seasons by remembering God's prior words. When you are waiting, remember what God has already said rather than being frustrated when He's not speaking now. Oh, how many hearts have cried out to God. Show me what to do. Show me, God, what you're up to. Speak to me again. Give me something new. I need some new information. But rather than being frustrated because God isn't speaking in the present. Friends, here's what we need to do. If we want to make it through the waiting season in one piece, we need to revisit what God has said in the past. Can you just think about this? I want to say God speaks 10 times in the Noah story. I think maybe eight prior to the flood. And Noah had eight sentences from God. And he could wait a year. Friend, we have 66 books from God 66 books, 1,100 chapters from God. And Noah, with eight sentences from God, waited. Friend, we have more of God's words than Noah ever had. But will we wait as well as Noah waited? Will what God said in the past be enough to keep you holding on in the waiting? No wonder the word of God is equivocated to bread that sustains us in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know what that's picturing? That's picturing Israelites wandering in the wilderness. And how do they make it? How do they not starve? Because from heaven flowed manna that dropped down every single day. How do you and I make it in the wilderness of waiting? We do so by the sustaining life of God's word. Oh friend, no wonder some of us get so frustrated because we aren't eating the bread. We're not revisiting God's past words, and no wonder we can't feel sustained in the wilderness. How do we submit to God's timing? I love the story of the dove. I'm not making too much out of a little detail here, I promise you. But look at verse number 9. This is a story about Noah. And for three verses, a bird takes center stage. What's up with that? I mean, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what's up with that? And I think Moses wants us to maybe figure this out with verse number 9. He describes the dove like a pilgrim. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. You know that's the same wording Moses used to describe the wandering Israelites in the wilderness? They found no rest for the sole of their feet. By the way, when they couldn't find rest for the sole of their feet, what does the Bible also say? That their shoes on the sole of their feet didn't wear out. God sustained them even when they didn't find a resting place. But then there's this detail about the dove. And what happens with the dove? He sends out the dove and there's nothing, and the dove comes back, right? And then he waits seven days and he sends out the dove again. And what does the dove bring back? Look at verse. Verse, I know, I know it's an olive. I'm trying to find the verse. Olive leaf, yes. Verse 10. No, verse 11. <laughs> and the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. What on earth is the deal with this olive leaf? Well on a practical level for Noah it was a sign that like the water had dried up enough that there were tops of trees now. Olive trees actually are like really hardy trees. They, 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 they're like cockroaches man. You can't, you can't kill them hardly. And so this this dove brings back this olive leaf because it may have been the first, the only thing that could have survived something like that. But we also know that the the, the, the idea here in verse number 11 is that there would be a day when Noah wouldn't just have an olive leaf, that the olive leaf was pointing Noah forward to a day when he would have access to an olive tree. And so here in the waiting, God brings Noah a little taste, a little picture. A little foreshadowing to what was in his future. And I don't know about you, but I have found it to be so true that God is so kind that he doesn't just make us wait in silence, but that he gives us little pictures of the future blessings he has in store for us. I found that God sends just enough good news right when we need it to keep us going in our seasons of waiting. I don't know what that might be. Sometimes it's an encouraging word. Oh, son, you have no idea how many, how many Mondays I've woke up feeling like garbage, thinking about the prior day, and God sends an olive leaf. How many times I've been in the middle of suffering, And I just don't know how I'm going to make it another day. And God sends an olive leaf. An encouraging word. By the way, Christians, we we need to encourage each other better. Some of you all don't realize that that you're the dove for someone else. I'm going to say it again. You're the dove for someone else in this church. We, we ought to be encouraging people, sending olive leaves as much as we can, encouraging people to get through. That's what the New Testament tells us. It, it could be a mark of progress, that you don't see anything happening, that God somehow breaks through and shows you that something is working in behind the scenes. Or it could be a verse of Scripture, an olive leaf, something. Sometimes that olive leaf reminds us of what God is up to in this life. But I, I, I've said this in our Sunday school lesson this morning about the resurrection, that sometimes we don't have assurance God will do what we want in this life, but the resurrection proves that God will fulfill every promise in the next life. That sometimes our hearts are so fixed on what God is gonna do in this pilgrimage that we forget God is not obligated obligated to fulfill his promise in this pilgrimage, but he will most certainly fulfill every promise when we cross over to the other side. That's why, by the way, as a church family, tonight at 6 p.m., we're celebrating communion. Some of y'all should be there who don't come. You should be there. You know why? Because as a church body, we need the olive leaf that communion offers. What does communion do? It reminds us of the bread of life, that in this journey we only feel like we get a portion of him, but on that day we will see him face to face. It's an olive leaf that reminds us that we'll drink that microscopic sized cup of grape juice now, but on that day when we meet our king face to face, we will drink new wine with him in the kingdom of heaven. What is communion? It's an olive leaf pointing us forward to the promises that God has in store for us. But friend, whether it's sustaining yourself by God's word, waiting on the olive leaf, submit to God's timing. I can't tell you how long that will be, but what Noah is showing us this morning by his silence is an example of submission. What is this passage teaching us? Even when you are waiting, Trust God is working. Believe his mighty power is working when you can't see it. Submit to his timing even when you don't understand it. Because God is working in the waiting. What do we do in response to this message? Well, number one, if you have never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you're trusting in what you can do to get through the storm, I have really bad news for you. It's not going to work out. Your morals, your good deeds, they don't get you through that. Only God's mighty power can save through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a personal relationship with God through Christ, man, here's what the Bible says, repent of trusting in yourself and turn to Jesus and accept his gift by faith. You don't need this message if you haven't done that. You need that. But for some of you, You need to pray for God's help to see the little blessings he's giving you now so that you can see his faithfulness in his work. You need to pray for God's help to crack open your Bible tomorrow morning so you can revisit what God has said in the past so you can trust him in the present. You need to pray for God to give you the faith to believe that he's working even when you are Waiting. One thing you might do this afternoon is shorten your Sunday nap by 10 minutes. And you might journal, write down, type on a phone app, whatever, all of the ways God has worked in the past. You'd be surprised what that will do for you. You'd be surprised when you come out of that exercise like, who am I to doubt? Nonetheless, I think if we're all awaiting people this morning, we all have some way we must respond. Some way we must meditate. Some way we must reflect on God's words. I'm going to have my wife come. And I want us to spend a moment in reflection, in prayer, See, God is so kind that I believe he has spoken today. Not because I'm the voice of God, but because his word is the voice of God. Unlike Noah, God has spoken today. You're not actually in abject silence. You you have heard the voice of God. And so here's what my philosophy is when it comes to preaching. If God is so good to want to speak to me, I should probably talk back to him. I don't think that's too deep, is it? So I want to just challenge you in your seat, reflect in prayer and speak back to God. Talk to him about what he's talking to you about. Let's spend some time in prayer. Let's not make it weird. Let's make it normal. Let's make it the the obvious thing that this is what we do as a church. We pray when God speaks. Shelby's going to play, give us some music to just help us tune in and just reflect and speak to our God. This morning I want to give you an opportunity to do that.